the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. You were sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cut deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life. It's a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions and life questions and pretty much whatever's on your heart and mind. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you live outside the local San Antonio area, You can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You also can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are in your car and driving, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Um, just hit the call now banner uh, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. Well, because it's Wednesday tonight, we'll be in the Old Testament here at Calvary Chapel. I'll be teaching Isaiah chapter 40 after months and months and months and months of, of going through judgment and woes. Uh, tonight we meet Jesus and Uh, The rest of this book, as I'm sure most of you know, uh, from the 40th chapter, uh, the next actually 27 books um, or chapters, including uh, tonight's Bible study, uh, are are really the most clear prophecies of Jesus in his fullness, uh, in his glory as a suffering servant, uh, dying for the sins of the world, the Lamb of God given for your sins and mine, um, this this last part of Isaiah is absolutely glorious. We're on holy, holy ground tonight. So that's tonight here at 7 o'clock at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Uh, tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with me as usual on the date day edition of the program. So ladies, if you have any questions or need encouragement of any type, she will be here to answer those questions. Let's get to questions that have been sent while we wait some phone calls. Uh, the first question comes from our email inbox. It's from Nacho. Um, his question, he said, is Acts 26, 13 through 18, an extended version of the moment of Acts 9, verses 3 through 6, or is it a culmination of guidance to Paul from Jesus in the time after Ananias' encounter in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 17. Uh, not to a couple of things. There are three separate times Paul gives his uh, testimony, his, his personal testimony, in the book of Acts. Um, um, they aren't different. It's just that depending on where the Spirit is leading, uh, he adds different things. Now, Paul, of course, didn't know that this was all going to be written by Luke in the book of Acts. Uh, at the time he was he was declaring this, but this is just like a TV show. It says day in the life with the Apostle Paul, um, and uh, that's what we get. He goes places, and 
He'll share his testimony. Uh, and then there just is a little more detail. Now, there, that doesn't mean there's any contradictions in his testimony. It just means that depending on the crowd, he is providing more information in some and less information in the others. But as the Spirit of God leads, he's simply declaring the, the truth of his testimony. Let me take this opportunity show, to talk about uh, the power of personal testimony. Um, I've given my testimony many, many times, and I, I've shared this on this program before, but one of the things that, that when the Lord, I, I have, if I go to speak someplace, and um, I've asked the Lord, well, what does he want me to teach? Sometimes the people will say, well, what do you want to teach? Sometimes they'll ask me just to share my testimony. Here's what I know is going to happen. Every time I share my testimony in a public venue, people get saved. Every time. Now, it's not the same every time. I'm not altering facts, but I'm just emphasizing different parts of my story as the Spirit of God leads. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. But let me encourage everyone in this audience. You're the world expert on what God has done in you and for you. So be eager to share your testimony with people. Nobody can argue. They can argue with your theology. They can argue with a particular interpretation but the one thing that nobody can argue with is your experience. So share your witness. Expect God to be blessed as a result of it. And then um, other people will get blessed in the process as well. So Nacho, thank you for the question. I love the book of Acts. The book of Acts is one of the books I tell our people here at Santa Calvary Chapel to, to read at least twice a year. Uh, we do that with the book of Revelation and with the book of Acts. Uh, they need, it needs to be read a lot. This, it, it's that important a book. Here is a question from Kirby from our email inbox. Uh, Paul was told not to describe uh, heaven even though he went there. Could that also apply to someone who has gone to hell and returned? I asked because a man named Bill Weiss or Weiss apparently wrote a book about his 23 minutes in hell. Should we take stock in what he says about this? Uh, Kirby, the, the book, I'm familiar with the book. Um, um, uh, as a young Christian, I, I put my hands on it and, and started to read it. And even then, I knew it was nonsense. No. Now, because Paul wasn't permitted to say uh, what he saw in heaven, uh, he says, I saw glorious, wondrous things, things that man is, inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. Uh, we can quickly identify books that say, well, I've been to heaven and here's what I saw. We know that's false teaching. Man is not permitted. Paul didn't say, I wasn't permitted. Man is not permitted to tell. So we know that. We can't assume that the same principle applies to hell. Here's the problem with these visions of hell you got to be dead to go there. And these people aren't being raised from the dead. No, there's no second chances in hell. And this is a book that's just sloppy. Theologically, it's emotional. It's, uh, I'm sure, an experience that this man has in some way imagined. But uh, uh, no, he shouldn't be telling us about it, nor should he accept the trip to hell as something that was um, designed by God. You know, God doesn't have to send us to hell to scare us. Um, we're also told that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not the fact that we have this vision. Now, we ought to be afraid of hell. Um, there, I'm, a, I'm a nightmare person. I get lots of nightmares, and, you know, those nightmares are sometimes the devil trying to drag me into hell, and, Jesus hanging there and fighting, trying to drag me out of hell. Well, well, I can wake up, and though it's a very difficult time at night, um, I know the dream wasn't from God. And if it's not from God, I don't want to even think about it. So um, just don't pay any attention, Kirby, to uh, books like this. Uh, the only book that we need uh, is our Bible, uh, Luke chapter 16, which I will be um, teaching in a couple of weeks. Um, um, 
the only thing that we need to know about hell or torment is given to us out of the mouth of Jesus when he tells us a story, not a parable. He tells us a story of the rich man and Lazarus. So avoid the book. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Jeffrey, and he wants to know, does God still heal today? Uh, Jeffrey, yeah, he does, but most often today, God heals um, using doctors. Uh, we, we get to experience this at Malta Medical. If you don't know what that is, Jeffrey, we are a church that has our own uh, family practice doctor's office that comes with it. Uh, they're just a few doors down, and um, uh, we treat people for free, and uh, we've seen people come in there um, sick unto death, and then through the care of the doctor, sometimes very quickly, uh, almost miraculously, other times very naturally, those people get healed, and they're, they're well, and very, very often, Jeffrey, they give their life to Jesus Christ. These are unbelievers, and uh, we're not afraid to ask God. God if takes a healing to show this man or to show this woman who you are, and we ask you to do that, and sometimes he does. We've had some uh, instances at Malta Medical that can only be described as miraculous other of those instances occur and seem very naturally. That's why, by the way, we call it Malta Medical. That's exactly what happened on the Isle of Malta when Paul's ship shipwrecked and uh, the chief official, uh, his father, was healed miraculously. The rest of the people on the island were healed. Remember, Dr. Luke was there, and they were healed. It's a different Greek word. They were healed therapeutically. That's the Greek word we get our English word therapeutic from. Uh, and uh, they were they were taken care of by the, the loving touch and kindness and medical care and prayers of uh, of Luke and those who were with him. Now, um, more important than that, um, God does still heal in miraculous ways. Um, it's not like the lepers that Jesus touched, but the people that Peter was able to say, like the beggar at the gate, beautiful. Um, um, or gold and silver have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise and walk. Um, um, most of the time, those aren't the kind of healings that happen in spite of what some of the crazy charismatic churches uh, try to make claim to, lay claim to. Um, he still does those kind of miracles in places where there's very little light. You go to third world countries or you go to the east, especially, and you find uh, uh, Muslims, um, you know, who risk their life just to convert to any other faith. Uh, God will show himself powerfully, just like he did in the book of Acts. But remember, the miracles then and miracles now are designed for one thing and one thing only, and that's to point to our need for Jesus. The point of a miracle isn't just to make you well. The point of a miracle is to get you saved. And so we got all these Christians walking around claiming these miraculous healings uh, or claiming their healing. Um, Jeffrey, most of that is just charismatic nonsense. Does God heal today? He does, but not so much like he did in the book of Acts, especially in nations like ours, where we have all the life that we need and don't need um, any further revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's really important. By the way, Jeffrey, you know, when I pray for somebody uh, who's asking for a miracle, uh, I'll ask him, what are you going to do if God says yes? If God heals you right now, what are you going to do? And I want him to, 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 to think about it, because uh, what I'm going to tell him is that, you know, if God grants your body strength again, will you use that strength for him and for him alone? Will you tell your story? Will you bring God glory? And a lot of times, no, I just want to be healed. Well, you know, God doesn't owe us a healing physically. By his stripes, we are healed doesn't mean that our physical ailments are promised to be cured. You know what I think, Jeffrey? I think People who will say to the Lord, God, please heal me. I want to be strong and 
able to serve you. I think those are the people that get healed. The person that just wants to get healed for the sake of being healed just wants to escape a trial. I understand wanting to escape a trial. But remember, Jesus is the grantor of miracles. He is the end or the target of miracles. He's the point. Thank you for the question, Jeffrey. Uh, Wes wants to know, do Muslims worship the same God that we do? Uh, Wes, no, they do not. In fact, Muslims in particular strip the deity away from Jesus Christ. Um, They claim Jesus is a prophet. Uh, They hold him, at least from their perspective, in high regard. But um, um, they take away his deity. They even go so so far as to claim he didn't really die and wasn't really raised from the dead. Uh, And so, no, they don't worship the same God. Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And they take Jesus' deity away. They, they of course, worship Allah. And um, um, the Allah of the Quran and the God of our Bibles are vastly different. For Allah, we can only hope that we can do enough good things to satisfy his wrath. For the God of the Bible, we know, don't we, Wes? We know that he meets us asking nothing from us and offers to cleanse us, to forgive us, to strengthen us, and to fill us with his presence. Absolutely free. No strings attached. So we do not serve the same God. Um, be careful, Wes, of the argument. Well, you know, they just serve God. It's just another way. But eventually we all end up the same way. We don't. Jesus said, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. That means everybody ever born in any religion or without religion is either going to stand before God and be judged on the basis of what they've done in their lives. Remember, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or people like me and people like you, Wes, are going to stand before the Lord and be judged on the basis of what he's done. And because he was the flawless Lamb of God, he was a man without sin. That means there's no charges against us because he took our place. Thank you. Appreciate the question. Here is a question from Robert. This is Pastor Ron. What is Calvary Chapel's position on tithing? Uh, Robert, we're not a denomination, so I don't think we have a standard position on things and certainly don't insist on others uh, maintaining the same position we do. Uh, the, the church group that we're affiliated with, Calvary Chapel, um, by and large, doesn't believe that tithing is a New Testament principle. Now, having said that, there are uh, some pastors who are convinced that uh, tithing is the best way to introduce people to giving, and, and so they stress tithing. I think a lot of times it's because they lack faith in God providing, so they manipulate the people to provide, and I don't mean that they do that with a bad heart in a judgmental way. But I think it just makes sense. I actually had a good friend of mine who loves Jesus with all of his heart. He said to me, Ron, when I started passing an offering, I said, just using the boxes in the back, my offerings went up almost 40%. If you want to get more money coming in the church, have a time of offering. And my response was, well, the Lord made it clear that I wasn't to do that. Uh, and so I, I, it's not just something, oh, you're missing out, he said. And I missed out on anything because God's been faithful. Now, let me tell you, Robert, my position, if you don't know it, it's uh, tithing is uh, something that we are to do, uh, or that Jews were to do under law. Jews were God's covenant people. You and I are not his covenant people, at least in terms of the old covenant. Um, our covenant, Jesus said, 
is a covenant of grace, God's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving is the way I like to describe it. And um, the old covenant has no longer hold on us. Our instructions as New Testament believers for giving is to give with a cheerful heart. To understand that God gets everything. We don't give God 10% and keep 90%. We don't give God 20% and keep 80%. We take the entirety of the total and say, God, look what you've blessed me with. What do you want me to do with your money? And then we can give with a cheerful heart because we've given in faith, because we, we've given out of an overflowing heart filled with love and gratitude. And that's the model that we're given, the only model, by the way, that we're given for New Testament giving. There is no other. When Jesus told Jews listening to him, you tithe and it's right that you do so, he was talking to people still under the Old Covenant as Jesus himself was under the Old Covenant and in the process of fulfilling it perfectly. So, Tithing simply is not something that a New Testament Christian ought to give. One more thought here, Robert, relative to tithing. The word means a tenth. The word means a tenth. That's where we get the 10%. If 10% is what was required under a law that destroys, a law that condemns, how much more generous ought we to be for grace? I've never been able to understand it, and yet people hold on to that tithing law like it's gospel. That's why we encourage people to give 10% of their income. Even Mormons give 10%, and they don't even know God. So hope that answers your question, Robert. Oh, here is a question from Gerald. Pastor Ron, in your opinion, what promises to Israel were given instead to the church? Uh, Gerald, none. Uh, the church is the church and Israel is Israel. And never the two shall meet. Okay, I mean, obviously we'll meet in heaven. But, but God's covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob, God's covenant promises to David. Uh, th- those promises have nothing to do with us. Now, they reveal the character of God. They certainly teach us that God is a promise keeper. But every one of the promises he made to Israel has to be fulfilled if any of those promises have been yanked away from Israel and given instead to the church. Well, then we're in real trouble because we've got a God who doesn't keep his promises. So, the promises to Israel belong to them. Promises to the church, to individual Christians, are ours. Be careful of sliding into replacement theology. You know, God got so angry at Israel that he just washed his hands of them and created the church, and now the church gets all those promises. Uh, Not only is that bad theology, uh, but it's anti-Semitic and uh, so many other things, Gerald. So um, none of those problems given to the church. Now, let me also say this, Gerald, because I think this is vital for New Testament Christians to understand. You know, we'll read, I know the plans I have for you, say the Lord, uh, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Um, uh, w- we want those promises. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and I will come and I will heal their land. He wasn't talking to us. But you can read the promises given to us, the church, to you individually, Gerald, in your New Testament. And they are infinitely greater, infinitely greater than any promises given to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. So it's really important that we understand that just because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Is that a promise an Old Testament saint ever had? If God is for me, who can be against me? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
Romans 8, 1, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those are wonderful promises. And if we'll grab hold of those promises by faith, we'll walk with Jesus holding on to those promises. Then I absolutely guarantee you that you would never trade those promises for the promises given to Israel. It's really, really important. And this whole idea of the church replacing Israel is antithetical to the character, the nature of God, and to what the Bible teaches. So, Gerald, I hope that helped. Be careful of who you're listening to, if that's the kind of stuff that they're going to promote. 340-9585, we've got, uh, we're coming right here, I think, to the end of the first half of the program. Um, remember tonight, I'll be teaching in Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, you can watch it at calvarysa.com uh, at 7 o'clock. Um, better yet, we've got room on Wednesday nights. We'd love to have you here, get a chance to meet you. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. Once more, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program we've got 30 minutes the phones have been quiet but we love your calls here is our first question for this half it's from reggie he says my question comes from john 14 verse 9 If Jesus isn't the Father, why did he say he was? You know, Reggie, this is a a verse that oneness types sort of twist in in their minds uh, in order to come over. Well, Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit, which, of course, is heresy. Let me read this verse, explain what was going on, and then I hope that will kind of clear it up for you. Uh, Jesus is answering Philip. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? And then he says this in the next verse, Reggie. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? He's talking about that unity, perfect unity between Father and Son. It didn't say I am the Father and the Father is me. I am in the Father And the Father is in me. So you see, Jesus doesn't really say at all that he is the Father. He's simply saying to Philip, and here's uh, what's going on. John chapter 14, you know, this is um, um, the upper room discourse um, just prior to uh, what we call the Last Supper and, of course, then Jesus' crucifixion. And um, uh, Jesus has been talking to his disciples whose lives now are completely turned upside down. All of their hope has been in Jesus. They've followed him. They've hung on every word for more than three years. They've seen miracles. They've seen things that no other humans have ever seen. And suddenly it's dawned on them. Jesus has convinced them finally that he's going to die. Remember earlier, Peter said, No, Lord, may it never be. And that's when Jesus spoke to Satan, not Peter, to Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. And then to Peter, you don't have in mind the things of God, but you have in mind the things of man. That was why Satan was able to, 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 to use his mouth in that regard. And at this point, they turn around to Philip. You've got to love Philip, because Philip asks a question that other people are too embarrassed to ask. With these crestfallen disciples, who now have no idea what the future holds for them, He says, but I'm going to the Father, so you can go to the Father. And Philip sort of interrupts and just says, well, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. And Jesus says, Philip, if you've seen me, 
you've seen the Father. In other words, we're perfectly in unity. We're, 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 we're distinct in personage, but we're one. So that's what answers the question. It really was, um, Reggie, the, Jesus wasn't saying at all that he is the Father. Uh, he just said, look, I am the same as, and we know that from our New Testament, he's the exact representation, the invisible image. I like to say it this way, Reggie, if, if uh, the Father looked in a mirror and could see his reflection, the reflection he would see would be Jesus. Good question. Thank you for it. Here's an anonymous question. This is a tough one. How can I share with my mother-in-law who says that if God won't take gay people to heaven, she doesn't want to go there to heaven either? Uh, anonymous, what you tell your mother-in-law is tell her she doesn't have to worry about it. She won't. You see, this is the problem. We, we, we've got to decide in this world to whom we belong. And your mother-in-law who wants to argue with you um, wants to paint God as being mean um, and unfair and unkind. Um, this is a God she doesn't know. What I would probably do, Anonymous, is is uh, engage her in conversation and just say, Mom, do you mind if I take some time? Will you really listen if I introduce you to my Jesus? And then try to convince her how much he loves her. You can tell your story how much he loves you and this is the proof. I used to be this and now I'm not. You can tell her that, that your Jesus is grieved when anyone has to be judged. In fact, he made it so difficult to go to hell that we literally have to go over his dead body to get there. And usually, as I'm sure you know, Anonymous, when people make statements like this, they're expressing um, their their relative ignorance about who God is or things of the Bible. Uh, this is just somebody in rebellion against God who says, well, I think gay people ought to be able to go to heaven. I think gay people ought to be left alone. And then we can, can share, no, if we love them, we want them in heaven. I think it's really important that you stand up for your God, not arguing, but just take the approach that you'd like to introduce her to this Jesus. I don't think I'll get to it today, but I have another question about uh, somebody who's got a difficult um, situation, accepting the fact if I become a Christian, then my my mom, who is not, is in hell. So uh, we don't want that to happen. So you share Jesus. Tell her what he's done. Tell her who he is. And ask her if she'd like her sins forgiven. Also tell her this isn't about gay people. This is about you. Mother-in-law, this is about you. What are you going to do with Jesus? Three four zero ninety five eighty five. There's a question from Melvin. He said, Pastor, on my pastor discourages debate and arguing about the Bible. I think it would help us evangelize. What can I do to change his mind? Uh, Melvin, you're barking up the wrong tree here. I'm with your pastor. Um, uh, nobody's ever been won into heaven through arguing. You know, uh, being around Calvary Chapel, we have a connection to a lot of ministries, um, apologetic-style ministries, people that do uh, debates all the time. And everyone that I am familiar with and have opportunity to talk to I always ask him the same question. When you debated so-and-so, did he or did she give their heart to Jesus? No. Has anybody during a debate or shortly after the debate, because of your participation in the debate, has any of them ever surrendered their life to Jesus? The answer has always 100% of the time been no. So Melvin, you need to be careful because it seems that you like arguing And you need to understand that God doesn't need you to win anybody. He wants you to share your story. He wants you to share your Jesus. But to win a debate or to argue, Paul says that we're to stay away from foolish arguments. Why? Because it 
produces only bad fruit. So if you want to evangelize, you go out and share Jesus. Don't share a debate topic. You share Jesus. You know, Melvin, we have, uh, I don't know where you're calling from or where the question came from, but uh, we have a street witnessing team that goes out uh, two Saturdays a month, downtown area. Uh, And in um, when they go out, it's not a huge group of people, but it's just people are so grateful to God for what they've done. But they they don't go out and get in people's face. They don't shout, turn, or burn. Um, you know what? They're out there conversationally telling people about Jesus. One-on-one, sometimes two uh, or three will be listening to one. But the idea here is we tell them about the kindness of God. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. It's not your presentation, Melvin. It's not your mastery of facts. It's simply this. Jesus, give me a divine appointment today. Let me talk to somebody whose heart has been prepared to call you Lord. And so the man, uh, Melvin, in your case, who likes to debate, um, you're putting a lot of faith in your ability to form an argument when in fact it is only the Holy Spirit that can draw anyone to Jesus. So I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, I don't know how old you are, Melvin, but young people like to argue. Um, they want to have the right answers. They want to win people's minds. This isn't Facebook for, for for eternity. We do it the way Paul did it. We do the way Peter did it. We, we do it the way that's laid out for us in the scriptures. And that's everywhere we go, we tell people about our Jesus. Here is the next question from Kevin. He says, the woman caught in adultery was going to be stoned. Why wasn't the man with her? Was this a double standard? Uh, Kevin, of course it was a double standard. There's always a double standard. Uh, In this particular case, it was more than that. But um, I want to make it very clear. There's always been a double standard relative to women's sexual activity and men's sexual activity. Men is a boys will be boys thing. Women is, oh, you know, there's something um, wrong with you if, if you give yourself away or or she's that kind of a girl. And that double standard has been in effect uh, ever since Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden. Um, the man wasn't with her because, and this is the other part of the story, uh, he was part of the trap. Now, this was a woman who was well known for her sexual promiscuity. We're not told that she was a prostitute. Uh, It is likely that she was um, single women in particular. Um, If if they were widowed, uh, they had no other way to take care of themselves. And um, it was just what they had to do to support themselves, to support children. Uh, In this particular case, this woman was a setup. The, the Jews knew that Jesus would be there. And so they set up this incident where this man and this woman be together. And then suddenly they spring in and, and she's going to be stoned. And they stand before Jesus. You know the story. Uh, this woman needs to be stoned. That's what Moses says to do. And they hand a rock to Jesus. Wanting him to throw the first stone. Remember, they're testing him. And Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And of course, because there was nobody without sin, they couldn't do it. They were uncomfortable. But when Jesus then bent down, Kevin, and began with his finger to write in the dirt, and let us study the finger of God, just chase it through the entire Bible. It's a marvelous, marvelous devotion time. But in this particular case, Uh, Jesus was writing, and it says, from the oldest to the youngest, they all began to leave. Now, we can only guess what Jesus said. I think, personally, it's very clear. I told you earlier, this woman was known for her promiscuity. Um, If she was a prostitute, as was likely the case, um, a lot of these other men in the crowd would have been um, previously engaged with her. They would have been the ones that maybe hired her for this trap for Jesus. And here's what I think Jesus was doing. He bent down, he wrote with his finger in the dirt, 
I think he wrote down their name, Moishi, and the date that he was with this woman. The next one, Eli. And then another date that he was with this woman. And when they saw what he was doing, well, then the only thing they could do uncomfortably was to get out. And so they left from the oldest to the youngest. And at the end, Jesus stood and he said, woman, where are your accusers? And she looked around and she thought, I don't know. Don't have any. They're all gone. And uh, the result, of course, was Jesus uh, forgiving her. Now go and sin no more, he told the woman. So, yes, there's always been a double standard. It's never been right but it's always been the way it is or was and probably is the way it always is going to be. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Donald. He says, Pastor Ron, I recently listened to your testimony online. You did some pretty bad things before you got saved. Why do you think God would choose you to be a pastor? You know, Donald, there's only uh, one reason God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak things to shame the strong, uh, the despised things, even the things that are not. I tell my church all the time, I'm an are not. I mean, I'm nothing. And when God takes somebody like me and uses us, how much more glory does God get? So he chose me Certainly not because I was a Bible scholar. I had never opened a Bible before I got saved. Never. Not raised in church. Knew some vague... They didn't even have veggie tales when I was a kid, so I didn't even know the, the children's Bible story. But God looked out over the edge of time and space and said, you know... I always like to think of the angels who long to look into these things, the things concerning grace. Angels sort of taking holy bets. Nah, not him, not him. And then God says, yeah, I call you to be a pastor. And the angels says, no! And then they turn and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So Donald, there, there's not a, 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 a rational reason in the world that God would choose me to be a pastor. I think I've said this on the program. I know I've shared it with my church a lot, but uh, one of my relatives was instrumental in bringing me to, to faith in Christ. And then instrumental, once I became a Christian and trying to help me, uh, he looked at me one day when I told him, I said, you know, I, I was six months old as a Christian when I, got, when I knew I was called to be a pastor. And I didn't even know for sure what a pastor did. I just said, I, I think this is what God spoke to my heart. And he looked at me and he said, Ron... There's no way you could be a pastor. You're lucky God even saved you. He'll never use you that way. Don't get your hopes up, he told me. And I think God just sort of giggled at him. So, yeah, I did a lot of bad things. Um, with great confidence, I can tell the people that I'm sharing Jesus with, whether it's tonight or Friday night or Sunday, or just out on the street, look, I don't know what you've done, but... I'm almost sure that none of what you've done is as bad as the things I've done. That's why Ron the Jerk, that's what people use. Oh, poor Paula. She married Ron the Jerk. Then I got saved and got radical for Jesus. Oh, poor Paula. She married a religious nut now. Um, God chose me. I'm just glad he did. One of the things that we're going to talk about tonight, not about being a pastor... But in Isaiah chapter 40, Donald, it says that men are as grass, and grass just sort of withers away. God blows on it, it goes away. And too many of us think that God's called us to do something because there was something special about us. There's nothing about us that's usable. God delights to use us, but he doesn't need any of us. And most of us disqualify ourselves from being used when we think that there's anything that I had to do with it or anything good in me that had to do with me being called to be a pastor. Not only was I Ron the jerk, wanted nothing to do with God. I actually blasphemed God a lot in my business. I used God to make money. You know, if somebody needed to talk about God, I'd talk about God. 
But here's what God knew. I would be so grateful for him forgiving my sins that I would throw my arms in the air and say, God, use me any way you want to. If he had me be um, anything at all, a uh, 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 part of a cleaning crew somewhere and there's nothing wrong with being a part of a cleaning crew I'd have been happy to do that in God's church until I went to be with Jesus and I'd like to think I'd have done it just as faithfully as I've done anything else in fact uh, when when we started here I did all the cleaning we, we didn't have anybody else doing it so while Paula was doing worship or uh, rehearsing I was cleaning the chairs off. I was cleaning the bathrooms. I was setting the chairs up straight, doing those things. I would have done that forever. And then God said, this is what you're going to do. And I got to tell you, it has been an unbelievably rich life, not rich financially, but unbelievably rich and passionate life. Brian says... Who should I take more seriously as a commentator, early church fathers who live closer in time to Jesus, or modern commentators? Um, Brian, uh, um, let me say this, and you didn't ask this part, but uh, I'm not a big commentary guy before you have a good grip on your Bible. Read it, reread it, reread it, and keep rereading it. Um. And then, then you'll be in a place where this, the Holy Spirit will give you discernment to know what commentators are better than others, who you can depend on. Now, as it relates to your question, uh, I think it's sort of an erroneous notion that the early church fathers, because they lived closer in time to Jesus, uh, had some deep spiritual insight that isn't available to people today. I mean, all you have to do is read the book of Acts, read the epistles, especially of John, uh, read Paul's letters to the Galatians, and you can see within 30 to 50 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, they were already getting everything wrong. The book of 1 John is written to come back to the Gnostic heresy and and uh, you say, well, they live close to Jesus, so we should pay attention to them. No, people have always been distorting. This, the devil has always had his hand in trying to confuse people about the word. So there's, there's absolutely nothing that the early church fathers had access to that we don't have access to. In fact, I would argue that the reverse is true. With time... Daniel was told knowledge will increase in the end, in the last days. Uh, I think we have access to more information. We've seen more. Certainly we, we ought to be able more accountable. The other thing, um, uh, Brian, about uh, the early church fathers is uh, the church was always in turmoil. The church was always in turmoil. And you know, we can look back on the history of the church, and unbelievers do this, by the way. They say, well, you know, uh, more people have been killed in the name of God than any other cause, which isn't true at all. But, um, you know, it was it was people that lived earlier, some who we revere as Bible commentators uh, who were responsible for the Crusades. I mean, religion has always killed a relationship with Jesus Christ, and the early church fathers were huge on religion and tradition. And many of those traditions have been passed throughout the centuries. And now 2,000 years later, there's, there's still people doing the same things they were doing then. So my take is that dependable modern commentators. Now, when I say modern, I mean in the um, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries. Um, uh, you'll find... Brian, some commentators that are dependable that you trust. It doesn't mean you're going to agree with them on everything, but uh, I think of Griff Thomas. I think of of uh, John Phillips. Uh, my favorite, I've said on this program many times, is F.F. Uh, F. Bruce. Um, um, but there's nothing about the early church fathers 
that gives them any more credibility than commentators today. Okay, hope that helps. We have two minutes left. Two minutes left. No calls today. Here's a question from Andrew. This will be the last one I can take today. He says, I know the Bible is important, but why didn't God make it more clear? Um, Andrew, um, first of all, I think the Bible is clear. When I, when I got saved and I started reading it, it made sense to me. The uh, Bible says this, so I have to change my life and do this. Uh, so, so I don't think that it is unclear at all. But I also know that the Bible is a book that takes commitment. It takes investment. I think sometimes, Andrew, people that ask this question, it's like they open the Bible, they get confused, they immediately close it. God is saying, look, the answers are in there. It's a, it's a treasure map. Go find the treasure. And I honestly think that often, this isn't personal, Andrew, because I don't know you, but I often think that it's just that we're too lazy to dig in, to sort of mine for gold. It's amazing. We'll get online and dig out something on Google or dig out conspiracy theories. We'll, we'll spend half a day. But open our Bibles, reading a chapter is like going to the dentist and having a tooth pulled. One reason the Bible isn't clear to people is because they're not doing what is clear. God says, for example, flee from sexual immorality. And we don't do that, so why would the Holy Spirit make the Bible clear? Respond to what you know is clear, and more will become clear. hope that helps. I'll keep the question up, Andrew, because I got more on uh, the program on Friday. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Tonight we have our Bible study, Isaiah chapter 40 at 7 o'clock. And Paula will be here tomorrow on the date day edition of the program. We will see you then, Lord willing, on AM 630, The Word. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.